Welcome back to the CVU School Counselor Podcast. Today on the podcast, we speak with Andrew Carter from Holy Cross University in Worcester, Mass. Our conversation today centers around numbers of applications Holy Cross receives during an application season. We also talk about the unique way students enter Holy Cross, Cross where every student enters as undeclared. And though they may enter with a major that they know they would like to study, every student still enters undeclared until at least the end of their sophomore year. And Andrew talks to us about the policies around this, why this came to be, and how they have seen it benefit the students on their campus. Holy Cross is considered a mid-size institution here in New England with about 3,000 students. They have about 64 academic programs on its roughly 174-acre campus, which is located about 45 miles from Boston, again, in Worcester, Mass. I hope you enjoy our conversation, get inspired to go see their campus, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Sure. Um, So I'm Drew Carter, and uh, I've worked in the Office of Admission at Holy Cross now. This is my 19th year, maybe? I lost track during the pandemic. I, I missed a, you know, a, a luncheon, you know, a, a school-wide luncheon for some bookmarks. I I think it's number nineteen now. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, like I'm, you know, as with everybody in our office, we're all involved with all roles. Um, we each have little areas that we specialize that probably take up maybe, you know, fifteen to twenty percent of our um, time. And one of the pieces for me has always been um, connecting with school counselors and um, talking policy, but also talking relationships and, and, and looking for ways, um, looking for ways to connect so that we can um, mutually uh, sort of educate each other on our opposing worlds and how we can, um, you know, continue to think about ways to, to make each other's jobs easier. How big is is Holy Cross at Cross, and how many how many applicants do you see in a in a applicant season? Yeah, so we're uh, right now we're at three thousand two hundred students. So, you know, in the world of like a New England small liberal arts schools, that puts us just slightly on the bigger end, um, especially compared to the big group of like two thousand uh, students, right. um, small liberal arts colleges. Uh, I can't say that it feels all that different, though. I've spent plenty of time on those campuses, um, maybe a little bit bigger. But uh, last year, we saw a big jump uh, in our applicant pool. Uh, We had been relatively consistent for about 10 years. And last year, uh, we went up, uh, you know, uh, almost to 9,000 applications. We had been sort of really plateaued in the 6,500 to 7,200 kind of range, give or take every year. Um, and then we took a big jump last year in all rounds, early decision one and two and regular decision. Um, so we'll see what this year holds. Uh, I learned long ago, no more predictions. Um, what do you think accounted for that, for that jump? Yeah. Um, I think a few things, um, one, I'm just going to always lead with the, like, unpredictability of working with, um, 17 and 18 year olds worldwide. Um, I'm conscious that Zeus is watching and I refuse to, to, uh, fall victim of hubris and I'm not going to take, it's not, we don't take credit for everything, 
nor will we take blame for everything if things don't go <laughs> well. But um, a certain level of unpredictability. It was also our first year um, uh, being a, a Questbridge school. So there was an influx of applications there. Okay. And then uh, at the same time, we, um, you know, we probably about two years ago started leveraging a couple different um, uh, ways to connect with students around the country. And I think those had kind of come to fruition uh, and traveling to some new areas. Finally, I think that was the last piece. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about Holy Cross, some unique programming you might have on campus, favorite or most popular majors? Just give yeah. us a little snapshot. So in some ways, we seem and sort of sound very familiar uh, to those who have um, know a bit about the small um, residential liberal arts colleges in New England. Uh, our classes are small, you know, averages would be you know, around 17 or 18 every year in the classroom. Um, a few of the things that are a little bit different, um, number one, every student comes in without a major and we actually, that's not an option, that's a requirement. Hmm. Um, that was a policy change a few years ago and um, everyone likes it. <laughs> uh, we still, we don't hold students back from pursuing any coursework that they're interested in. Um, but every student starts undeclared and like most schools will uh, will hold students to a deadline of the end of their sophomore year to declare their major but we allow students to start as a blank slate um, and without having pre-committed themselves while they're in high school there's no worry about their, you know um, changing their major it's a question i get a lot from kids is it easy to change my major i say well holy cross kids usually don't because they don't declare their major until they've taken you know, it's sometimes several semesters of coursework in that mm. um, department. Um, we have no sort of big one or two powerhouse um, departments um, that have a, a large um, enrollment. Um, like a lot of liberal arts schools, we have a lot of um, students in the humanities, but maybe slightly different. Uh, as a Jesuit school, we have a big history of students in the sciences and our pre-med program is um, particularly well-respected and has a um, pretty sizable enrollment there as well. Um, and also, uh, I think like a lot of liberal arts schools, we attract kids who are interested in a bunch of different things. So with students designing their own major and pursuing double majors, and I think that's particularly, um, uh, it's really possible for the kids because they come in undeclared and they're still, they're open to kind of discovering new avenues and new majors um, because they didn't pre-commit themselves while they were still in high school. So what brought about that, that, that shift from asking students to indicate on their application kind of what they were interested in studying uh, to more of a, you don't get that option where you're coming yeah. in undeclared? Yeah. Um, what we were seeing were students coming in both undeclared and having um, identified a major, the students <laughs> who were undeclared were feeling that they had to rush to declare a major. You can imagine, you know, you move mm. into your room as a as a first year student. You meet your roommate. You say, "Hey, I'm Drew. I'm undeclared." And what's your name? And you say, oh, "I'm Russ. I'm a bio major." And all of a sudden, now I feel like I'm behind. Right. Um, and while I may not say anything, I'm going to rush to declare my major. Now, meanwhile, 
you've declared bio, but two weeks from now, you might be a poli sci major. <laughs> yep. But the effect was that I felt like I was behind. And while I had come in to Holy Cross with this great open mind and, you know, a, a willingness to explore and embrace the kind of the liberal arts um, approach, I abandoned that pretty quickly because I, I felt like I was falling behind everyone. Now, meanwhile, we're both going to end up, you know, having changed our major three different times and really rushed. So it was a, it's well-intentioned, <laughs> um, but I think it, it wasn't having the desired effect was we want students to come in, still pursue courses um, that they're interested in. And, you know, we certainly have that student who comes in and says, I'm a bio major. I'm going to study biology. And those kids sometimes don't change. Well, what we say to them is great. Go take biology. You know, you're undeclared. <laughs> Let's just go take biology. Take some biology classes and, you know, maybe explore other areas as well. So we're not holding students back in any way, but we are holding off on on labeling first yep. year students as majors. And um, the truth is everyone likes it. Even that student who says, I know what I want to major in. When we say, well, you'll take those classes, but you'll be undeclared. Even that student says, okay, good. Whew. Like that's a relief to them. Um, parents like it. School counselors like it. Um, it's been, it's sort of surprised me about how well received it's been, that change. Well, I, I like it because it, it plays into my next question, which is how do you help students pursue life beyond college? And I would imagine there's some, there's some ease with that transition because you, you have students who haven't changed three quarters of the way through. You've got students who are kind of career centric from a really logical point in their programming. So what, how does Holy Cross help? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I work in the input office at Holy Cross, right? Like we're, we're helping to Im import students and there's, a, there's an export office and that's the Office of Career Services like exist at most colleges. I think one of the big shifts that's happened, um, and maybe it's less of a shift than, than I thought it was. I think when I was in college, I thought, oh, you go to the, the Career Center second semester senior year and maybe someone will help you. Um, that's, it's so different now. And maybe it was different when I was in college and I just didn't understand, but our, you know, our office of career services, they want to meet students first year. Um, they want to start to work with students, um, help them start to, you know, discern their own interests and identify areas of interest, whether it's connected to their area of study or not. Um, and then start to provide them with exposure, whether it's workshops or shadowing opportunities or internships or summer jobs, whatever it might be throughout the four years. So that by the time they get to senior year, um, they've gone through an evolution, they've gone through a discernment process and they have a, a much better idea of, of what they might wanna do following their college career. And we do believe that like what you study isn't necessarily um, always going to be what you do for the rest of your life. Everyone in admissions can attest to that because none of us studied college admissions in college. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, like I think part of the, the liberal arts decree is to, to um, empower students with a skill set of reading and writing and thinking critically and communicating and, and those skills, you know, transferred to so many different job fields. Um, so I think we're supportive of that idea that what you study doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be your the career for the rest of your life. Um, but also in encouraging students and 
but a sort of a process of of exploration and investigation and discernment um, so that by the time they get to their senior year, they, they feel much better about their choices and their options for following graduation. Yeah, I studied criminal justice and forensic psychology. <laughs> I'm, I'm a long way from that. Yeah, and I think, I think we have to keep reminding our students that that's okay. And that, you know, the time you spent in those classrooms, it wasn't all wasted. You were building a skill set. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe the particular um, material that you are memorizing isn't always, but always useful. But there's so many um, things there that help to prepare you for life after college. So, what do you think students enjoy most about being on the Holy Cross campus? Um, I, I um, my role, I end up moderating a lot of panels, uh, student panels, whether it's on webinars or whether it's at open house events, and uh, you know, I say this answer not as what I think the answer is. It's the answer that I hear our students say. Um, and what I hear most often when I ask students that question um, on a panel is the sense of community, um, is the connection. Um, I did not attend Holy Cross as, a, as an undergrad, and, and I can say as an outsider, it just really does feel differently at Holy Cross. It's not cool not to be nice. Um, there is a kind of uncommon sense of compassion, um, a contagious culture of door holding. Um, hmm. I know it, that's just a little thing, but I, I'm i a believer that there's nothing bigger than the little things. And right. in, in some way, yes, it's just a recognition that like, oh, I realize I'm not alone in the doorway, um, or I may not be alone, but I also think it's something bigger than that. It's, we, we, at Holy Cross, like to um, be open to the possibility that we're not alone in this doorway, in this community, in this city, in this world. And um, I think there is that like strong connection that students feel in this community, and it allows them to be their best selves. Um, and, you know, at least when I talk to students, um, it's that sort of intangible quality that doesn't necessarily show up in a guidebook or a, a view book or a website but it's the secret that everybody knows on campus that that's the special uh, quality of the community at Holy Cross. It's nice that that ha that's, that students feel that way on, as you described it, kind of touching on to the bigger size of campus, end of the campus spectrum. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. Um, so I'm gonna jump into the questions that, that uh, I hate to ask, but I kind of feel are um, are important to to all of these conversations. Is and I'll just kind of lump them in, and we can kind of pick them. You can answer them all, or we can kind of go back and um, tease one of them out. But what are your thoughts on standardized testing? How important are um, and how important are quarter one grades in the admissions process? And then you guys did a you did a webinar for school counselors on letters of rec. How important are letters of recommendation in the process? Okay, let's go one by one. Uh, standardized testing. So we've been test optional for almost 15 years now. Um, yep. So it's very much our mode of operation. And it's we, not new to, it's not new to Holy Cross, the, the no. idea of standardized testing. And we, uh, there was no change for us in the pandemic other than our phone was ringing off the hooks, off the hook from all of our friends at other colleges who are saying, how are we going to be 
go test optional. How did you do this? And, um, and you know, our, our response was an easy one. Uh, it's going to be fine. In fact, you're going to like it better. And I think we've seen that with a lot of schools. Um, I don't think standardized testing has ever played a smaller role nationally in college admissions um, with the number of schools who are test optional right now. The, the sad thing is that there's been no change in student anxiety around standardized testing. And that's, um, and that's kind of why I'm asking the question is, yeah. I think it's one thing for a student to hear from myself or my colleagues that standardized testing should not be the source of tremendous anxiety. But now that tests have come back and students can test, yeah. we're seeing that anxiety come back. And I'm really hoping that at least for my CVU community, they're hearing from all of the, and I'm not picking the test optional schools strictly to get this message out there, yeah. um, that they, they're hearing that it's not gonna hurt. So I appreciate your, your thoughts on the I mean, topic. And we we realized this 15 years ago, and I think a few other schools have found it out in the pandemic is that anxiety around testing doesn't go away when you go optional. In fact, you've just added a second layer. There's the anxiety about taking the test. And then there's the anxiety about should I submit or not? <laughs> you've just created another layer of anxiety. And that's because of the suspicious nature <laughs> yep. um, of families and students and even counselors about standardized testing and, and what what we say at the college level and whether we really mean it. Um, I And I understand there are some schools out there that are still in a sort of a trial um, period for being test optional that may not be authentically test optional. Um, and I totally get that. And it, 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 it breeds the suspicion across the country. The reality is that I think that there is a big group of us of authentically test optional schools and the reality is, is that when standardized testing is submitted in an application, it becomes part of the conversation, but a small enough part of the conversation that you could have the very same conversation without that piece and not know, to, know the difference. Um, not many people or families or students believe me when I say that. <laughs> um, the reality is so I have a, a few rebuttals to that. And one of them isn't, it's not, it's not a, it's a rebuttal that doesn't make people feel good about applying to college but the reality is is that the volume is such right now in, in college admissions the admissions reader no matter what school they work at they don't have time to stop and think about things that aren't in the application so that's the fear mm. students think if i don't submit my scores you'll think i did poorly i understand that fear but it's a false premise that they're going to think about anything that they don't see. The reader just doesn't have time. I'm, I'd love to say it's a moral position. We won't think about things we don't see. Okay, but frankly, we just don't have time. And um, the application is still so thick and rich and full of, of other information that we find is a reliable way to measure um, that application against the rest of the pool. And uh, again, it leads people to the, well, if you have one application with testing and another application without testing, and I, my response to that usually is, well, we have more than two applications. We have thousands of applications. And, um, and it's just one other piece of information from four hours on a Saturday morning or on a school day now, I guess, um, that 
that we feel pretty confident that we can make decisions without that piece of information. Yeah, you've got a you've got a almost a longitudinal study in front of you with the transcript in yep. terms of four three and a half years worth of sure. performance versus yeah. as you said that four hours on a Saturday. Yeah. Um, so first quarter grades uh, senior year to us are meaningful. We require them for every application, whether it's early decision or regular decision. Um, it's the students' most difficult coursework, typically, that they they've have had in four years, the coursework that's closest to the college level. I do want to say this, though. I've, I've talked to a lot of students this fall, a lot of seniors, uh, who are feeling stress about their senior fall grades. And I reminded them is that what colleges are looking for is that your performance in the classroom during your senior fall is consistent with your overall profile. And what I mean by that is if you had a a minus in English last year and you have a B plus during your senior fall, that's okay. <laughs> that's consistent with your overall profile. Um, you know, the the stress over a point here or a point there or a plus there or a whole letter grade there, um, students were really working themselves up about those minor little dips. And I, I kept reminding them, listen, that that's in profile. What, right. what, you, what you don't want is to you know, put up three, four, five grades during your senior fall that are truly out of profile, that if you have no Cs on your transcript and then you have four Cs senior fall, that's out of profile, okay? But the little minor changes, the plus or minuses, the small degrees of difference um, students shouldn't worry about so much. Um, so that was the second question. And the third was... Letters oh, of rec. Letters of rec. They are the least important documents in the file um really the least important required documents okay okay so the i think the academic profile is the most important part and that's the information that comes from understanding the school the student attends what courses they've signed up for how they've performed in those courses and then if submitted or not standardized test scores uh that information that's i described that as the cake right yep um everything else is is in the frosting and that would include essay if a school requires supplements the supplements and then the counselor recommendation and teacher recommendations. I'd probably put them in that order. Um, that's maybe what I would say, but that's also what um, Common App did a survey of nationwide of colleges and universities. That's the order that they found out um, that uh, most colleges put uh, for um, order of importance for required hmm. documentation. That being said, I think the counselor recommendation for us really does help frame the, the academic work that the student um, has accomplished over the course of their four years. It, it helps to explain context of the student experience, whether it was courses that available, grading structure, or maybe uh, blips in the student record that might have been personal or might've been school-based. It really is kind of the decoder ring for the transcript. It's not kind of <laughs> yep. to think about it. Um, the teacher recommendation I would put after the counselor recommendation in order of importance that to us is like a, a snapshot of, of what the student is like in the classroom. And um, it does help to kind of bring that black and white application into color a little bit and help us picture that student a little bit better. Um, I think that the thing I talked to high school juniors about, particularly this time of year, and that they don't necessarily understand is that they think their recommendations just sort of pop out of nowhere. <laughs> when the reality is, is that recommendations especially teacher recommendations, they're literally just letters filled that have been witnessed 
throughout the student's junior year. And it sounds cheesy when I say it to kids and they roll their eyes a little bit and I understand why, but students create their own recommendations. They don't write them, but right. they give the teachers all of the content. Um, I say the teachers are the cook or the chef, you're buying the groceries and you get to decide what groceries to buy for that chef. And um, so I always invite, maybe encourage high school juniors to say, think about what you want your recommendations to say. And now think about, have you give, have you bought those groceries for that teacher? <laughs> you know, that history teacher you have this year, that English teacher, that math or science teacher that you think you might ask at the end of the year for a recommendation. Every day you have an op opportunity to impact that recommendation and shape it and in some ways even create it. So uh, that message is sometimes obviously a little too late for high school seniors, but for juniors, they really have an opportunity to contribute to the content of their recommendations and therefore to their application. I like that perspective. We go into our writing composition classes and I'll, I, I, I can see that that presentation where we're talking about to juniors about how to start the process. And I can see myself stealing that, uh, hmm. that line. <laughs> um, all right. So a couple fun questions. If, if okay. you're, if you're game, um, I, I talk to my students about how I think the essay, a lot of your, a lot of the common application and the application in general, is really the student drawing the black and white picture that you'd see in a coloring book and the and the essay is really an an opportunity for the student to color in that that student profile. So what have been some of your favorite I mean you said you've been doing this for almost 20 years. What have been some of your favorite um essay reads over the years? Yeah. Um I uh, for many years have kept a list. Um it's an Excel spreadsheet and this is because of so often I was asked to do, you know, this question or I was asked to do, you know, workshops at schools uh, on essay writing. And so I, in an Excel document, would keep a list so I could refer back to some of these essays. Student's name was in the column, first column, so that's where I could find the essay. Uh, second column was the school name. Uh, that just kind of sometimes helped me to remind me of the essay. Then the third column was the topic, what the essay was about. And I would keep that list as I was reading applications every year. Sometimes there would be in the neighborhood of 10, sometimes it grew as much as 20. Um, I've done this job for a long time and you can see all the tabs down at the bottom. So it's not that interesting to look back through the names, nor, I mean, I guess looking at the schools is a little interesting. It's much more interesting to look through the column of topics. Um, I bet. I'd say about 10% of the, of the best essays that I've read in almost two decades are on what I think the outside world thinks great essays are on. They're on really life-changing events. Um, surviving a house fire, uh, genocide in my home country, um, my parents' divorce, overcoming cancer, like these really like mammoth topics. But that's only about 10% of the best essays I've read. That means what 90% were about nothing or not nothing, but small topics, small right. moments. Um, uh, why I mow my family's lawn, um, what it felt like to swim in that ocean the one day, um, uh, why soccer is my favorite sport. Hard to believe that was like such an amazing essay, but it was. Um, what my order at Starbucks says about me. And um, 
one I read last year, which I particularly enjoyed. Remember off the top of my head, why my father is sometimes kind of embarrassing. Um, <laughs> the reality is, is we read great essays. That'll be the year. essay my daughter writes. Yeah. We read great essays every year about silly, small topics. And we read terrible essays every year on what the guidebooks say are great topics. We read great essays about grandmas. We read terrible essays about grandmas, right? It's it's never been grandma's fault. I am a big <laughs> believer that there's no connection between the topic of the essay and the quality of the essay. Um, and that's contrary to what I think most high schoolers believe. There is a direct connection, though, between how the student feels about the topic of the essay and the quality of the essay. Yes, absolutely. Students write the best essay on the topic they want to write about. And if they want to write about that topic, they are likely to find something when writing it, whether it's meaning or whether it's mojo or whether it's just a few minutes of fun. Whatever they find when writing it, we will find when reading it. And sadly, I think for a lot of students, they find themselves bored when writing their essay or they find themselves pulling their hair out when writing their essay. And unfortunately, that's probably what we're going to experience when reading that essay. So I'm always encouraging students to choose the topic that you want to write about, not the topic you think you should write about, not the topic your parents think you should write about, not the topic the guidebooks say you should write about, not the topic your a cousin wrote about a few years ago when she got into Middlebury. None of those are the best topic for you. The best topic is the one that you want to write about because that's the topic that we want to read about. The best essays I've read recently have been, and when I've talked with students, uh, I'm thinking of one in particular that came to see me last week or the week before with a brand new essay that they said they wrote in about 15 minutes. And it just, they've been trying to write the perfect essay and this topic came into their head as a almost as a source of frustration and they wrote the essay they polished it and it was the one they sent they sent off to to colleges because it was it it was super powerful and it just was this organic thing hmm. that moved away from writing what you what you think people should be hearing about you to just this really fun essay for them to write and it was super fun and informative to read. I can't wait for admissions reps to read some yeah. of these essays. I mean, I the the stress that students feel about it is I so understand it because they have spent their entire high school career writing for a really well-known audience. They write for their English teacher and their history yep. teacher, a person they see every day who lovingly explains the assignment, who answers their questions on the assignment, who might give them feedback. And they have an ability to anticipate that person's reaction to their writing. And then senior year, they write for this anonymous person who doesn't explain the assignment. The assignment is confusing and filled with a bunch of commas. <laughs> and they don't have an ability, they think they don't have an ability to anticipate that person's reaction. Um, and meanwhile, we as a society have built this up to say like, okay, well, in 650 words, boil down the essence of who you are. Gosh, I, got, I don't want that assignment. Like, I would be <laughs> paralyzed by that. The reality is, is that it's not the most important part of the application. Um, their academic profile is. And the world is also filled with these urban legends of, oh, so-and-so who got in last year to Dartmouth just because of their essay. 
no, 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 that didn't happen. Or so-and-so who didn't get in just because of what they chose for their supplement. No, no, no. Like essays, it's insanely unlikely for it, for the writing to make or break the admissions file. It tends to fit with the overall file. It's worthy of the student's attention, uh, but it is not worthy of, of what we see so often is the stress levels, particularly in October and September of the student's senior year. Um, it's it's really out of proportion there with, with the actual role it plays in the decision. Yeah. Um, last question. When you were applying to schools, or next to last question, what was your process and how many schools were on your list? Oh, uh, yeah. Granted, I mean, it was 20 years ago, but. Yeah. Well, more, a lot more than 20 I years ago. I think we all remember. <laughs> yes. It was more than 20 years ago for me. Um, my process was uh, awful. It was like the, I mean, I, I, I say sometimes in introductions, I've spent my entire career encouraging students not to do what I did, um, which was to not really, well, I'm going to. There is a kernel of good in what I did. I'll get to that at the There's end. There's always that kernel in in, yeah. in those things. I um, was not all that thoughtful about my process. I was a recruited student athlete, so that played a piece in sort of shaping the schools that were on my list and in, in how I thought about what my college experience was going to be like. Um, I did not visit any schools that I applied to. Hmm. I did not think much about um, where, what fit meant. I, um, my list, uh, gosh, I think my list was probably around somewhere between six and eight. If you put a gun to my head and said, write down all the schools you applied to, there's a 50, 50 chance. I couldn't even exactly get the list right. Hmm. And it was only six or seven or eight schools. Um, so there's all the bad things. I did everything wrong comma i just really believed that my success and happiness was dependent upon me and not which particular fine institution in the northeast that i chose um and there's the kernel of good um i was a adaptable kid who just thought oh, gosh i'll i'll find friends and professors i like and i'll find happiness um and so I didn't actually like, I put some thought into the college application process. I did not put a lot of pressure because I I just sort of had the opinion it's gonna be fine. It's gonna be right. fine. And the, the it was success and happiness. I just kind of thought, well, if I went to that school or that school or that school, I don't know, it's not that big of a difference because I'll find some level of success and some level of happiness because that's mostly dependent on me. So I think there's the kernel of good because I think, um, gosh, I think students sometimes put too much pressure on finding the one perfect school and there isn't a one perfect school. There's a whole range of schools that are in the 0.89s and 0.90s and you're just gonna round up a school to a, a perfect one. That kind of works with marriage as well. My wife has rounded rounded me up a long ways to, to a perfect one. Um, and, but a lot of, a great deal of, you know, students' success and happiness is really more dependent upon them not the like school X versus school Y. Agreed. And last question, promise. Um, any final thoughts, things that, that I haven't asked that you think we should kind of just touch on really quick? Yeah, so um, 
I would just say one maybe small piece about uh, visiting schools. Um, Perfect. Actually, it will be two small pieces. Number one, um, there. I think sometimes we think of a visit to a college campus has to be so precious and organized when the reality is, is sometimes you're just on the way back from grandma's house and you see a sign on the highway that says this college, this exit, and you just get off and drive around for five to 10 minutes. Um, I was on my way back from Lake Placid yesterday and I made that visit to Middlebury College and, you know, I saw the sign and like drove around for a few minutes, got out, walked around for a few minutes and, and got a, a sense of a flavor. Um, those little mini exposures matter. I think longer exposures are, are better, but those matter and they count and they help um, they help students understand the, the perspective, scale, and also learn about themselves and how they yep. react to certain situations. So that's my first piece. The second piece about the visit, I'd say, if you are spending more than 10 minutes on a college campus, make sure that you go to a spot on that college campus where food is served to the college students. Um, I always say, find that student center, yep. find that student union, whatever it's called, find that coffee shop in that spot. They've all got a coffee shop. Get yourself a scone or a cup of chai or a smoothie and just sit down for 10 minutes and you will learn more about student life and culture and community at that school in those 10 minutes than you will from the whole campus tour and the website. Because when you go to the spot where food is served to college students, you see students interacting with each other. You see how real students dress, not just the tour guides. You see the faculty member who stops to talk to the student. You see the signups for the ski trip, uh, the ski club trip that weekend. You see a bunch of advertisements for um, organized activities that weekend. You also find copies of the student newspaper, um, which is the dialogue that students are having with each other about the things that matter to them. Um, You'll learn much more about that college in that document, that student newspaper, than you would from the glossy admissions brochure that we like to hand out. So um, look for those mini exposures of, of 10 minutes or so. And when you have more time than that, go to the student center and spend 10 minutes and you'll learn so much about student culture. I think that's great advice. And on that note, Andrew, thank you. 